turn this morning to the book of Isaiah, to the 10th chapter. We'll pick up at verse 5 where we left off and continue through the 19th verse of Isaiah chapter 10. In these uh, verses, we'll be hearing more about the great empire of um, Isaiah's day, the Assyrian Empire, about which uh, we've already heard plenty over these past several weeks. Assyria was the great threat in the ancient Near East during the day uh, these events about which Isaiah writes uh, took place. Uh, The very thought of Assyria showing up at your doorstep would throw a cold chill over every heart in that place. They had a reputation, the Assyrians did, the Assyrian army for ruthless bloodthirstiness and for their horrific abuse of anyone who tried to stand in their way. They were known to flay leaders of cities who dared to resist and hang their skin in public places as a warning to anyone who would think of rebelling. Asher Nasser Paul, in the uh, fifth year of his reign, the great king, the mighty king, the uh, king of Assyria, the king of the universe, he uh, records a series of conquests, including this one. Quote, chariots and and picked cavalry I took cavalry I took with me, and on rafts I crossed the Tigris. All night I marched and I drew nigh unto Petura, the stronghold of the men of Dira. The city was exceedingly strong and was surrounded by two uh, walls. Its citadel was like a mountain peak. With the supreme might of Asher, my lord, with the multitude of my hosts and my furious battle onslaught, I fought with them. For two days from before sunrise, I thundered against them like Agog, the god of the storm, and I rained down flame on them. With courage and might, my warriors flew against them like Zu, the storm bird. I took the city, and 800 of their fighting men I put to the sword and cut off their heads. Multitudes I captured alive, and the rest of them I burned with fire and carried off their heavy spoil. I formed a pillar of the living and a pillar of heads against the city gate, and 700 men I impaled on stakes over against their city gate. The city I destroyed, I devastated and turned it into a mound and ruin heap. Their young men and their maidens I burned with fire. Well, now you get some idea of the people of whom uh, Isaiah is speaking here when he records these words of God expressing his, that is, God's intent to bring Assyria, to bring this nation, this empire, Assyria, their armies as the rod of his own anger upon his own disobedient people, Israel. Let us pray. Father in heaven, what great acts are done and far beyond our knowing or telling by you. The mind of God so high, his thoughts so far above our thoughts. But we pray, O God, that you will reveal as much as you are pleased to reveal to us that we may worship you, that we may serve you, that we may obey you, that we may love you, 
that we may adore and submit to, fear and rejoice in this great God. Speak, O God, we pray with trembling for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 10, we begin at verse 5, God is speaking. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. This is a devastating portrayal of the destruction that would indeed, as Isaiah prophesied, fall on Israel. There is, of course, some terrible irony here in this passage. There is a godless nation, a people of wrath in God's sight, but it's not Assyria. It's Israel. Reminiscent, isn't it, of that series of sermons we heard years ago from the prophet Habakkuk, who who later cried out to God concerning the sinfulness of Judah to the south, and then shuddered and groaned when it was revealed to him that God was sending godless Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to punish Judah. That would come later, for now Assyria is the nation, will fall on Israel to the north. Well, that was God's plan. Assyria, of course, naturally had a different sort of take on the whole situation. Verse 7. But he, and we're talking about Assyria now, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? And his bragging now, Assyria, lists these, these uh, nations, these, these entities, Calno, Carchemish, Hamath, Arped, all of which have fallen over the years to the uh, wheels, under the wheels of Assyria. And then he adds Samaria in Israel as if it's already taken. Uh, interestingly, on the map, each of these come one step closer to Jerusalem, to Judah. Would she get the clue? Would she catch this hint? Back to Assyria's bravado and and braggadocio in verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria... Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Here, let me, let me share with you an actual quote from one of the Assyrians, one of the Assyrian kings, Adan Nerari, the second bragging of his military exploits. He writes, In these days, when at the command of the great gods, my lordly sovereignty, has manifested itself, going forth to plunder the goods of the land. I am royal 
I am lordly, I am mighty, I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful, I am all powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion brave, I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble. Right. Well, the Lord has plans for arrogant Assyria. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says... By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. We have a, uh, uh, at the Burkett's house a new bluebird uh, house in our backyard, which we hope will be occupied by a uh, bluebird couple soon. As our family's been researching it, we found that it's actually wise and helpful to monitor the nest. And uh, we learn from what we've read that when conditions are just right, you can actually open the box and reach in and lift the mother off of her eggs, check and count the eggs, and then put her right back down on them. With as much ease, Assyria says, he's taken the eggs of other kingdoms. But Assyria doesn't understand that he has been all this while simply the instrument of God. In God's hand. Nor does he comprehend the utter absurdity of thinking himself greater than the one who wields him like an axe. Verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land. The Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. What we have before us this morning, dear flock, is one of the greatest expressions of God's sovereignty in all of the Bible and one of the most astounding. We have arrived at what John Calvin calls 
a profound abyss. In fact, we come up against two doctrines, both of which are 100% true, even if we cannot cause the two of them simultaneously to submit perfectly to our little finite minds. God is 100% sovereign over men, over their thoughts, over their words, over their actions. And man is 100% responsible for his thoughts and his words and his actions. Now, there's nothing ultimately irreconcilable about them. Of course, they are both fully true according to the Scripture and are presented unqualified and unvarnished in the Bible and therefore are not incompatible with one another in the mind of God. But here we find ourselves face to face with another of the Bible's wonderful, even if somewhat mysterious, teachings the contemplation of which will bring great profit to you, to the Christian, who will give some time, as we are this morning, to have them set before us again by the Holy Spirit. First, consider this. Consider how God, in His sovereignty, His universal rule over all men and all things, uses even wickedness to His ends. Here are the Assyrians, the most vicious, wicked, arrogant nation. Someone has described them as the Nazis of the ancient Near East. Yet, to God, they are, he says in verse 5, the rod of my anger. So close is the direct working of God in them that he calls the staff in his hands, in Assyria's hands, his own fury. This is certainly not the only time that the Bible has done this and and continues to do this, where this truth is taught that God sovereignly rules and directs the wicked in their wickedness. You remember from our time in Genesis, the crowning summation of all the events, the twists and the turns in, in Joseph's life, and particularly his transfer into slavery at the hand of his own brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. The Babylonians, as God's own instrument for disciplining his people, has been already mentioned, and more could be added. Remember Jesus' words to Judas. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. God, the scripture says again and again, hardens hearts so that they will not do what is right. We've heard of him, read of him in the scriptures, sending an evil spirit upon a man, a powerful delusion upon a people so they will believe the lie, a stubbornness that keeps a man from heeding good advice to his own destruction. All these things God has done. Of course, the greatest 
example. And the classic example must be the one Peter mentions in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.23. This Jesus, Peter preaches, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Here is bald sovereignty, the plan and foreknowledge of God. And Unqualified responsibility. You crucified him. I don't know if you've noticed this recently, but uh, it certainly is noticeable. In our day, it's becoming more and more common, if a person believes in God at all, for him or her to speak of God, God's works in terms of permitting things or, or, or allowing things to happen. When, when something good happens, of course, something wonderful, something really pleasing happens, something righteous, that we count righteous, of course, then we say, God did this. You know, God, God has performed this, brought this about. But then something awful takes place, something clearly sinful, something devastating, and people are lining up at the microphone either blatantly to say, God didn't do this. Or if they have some biblical sensitivity about them, they, they feel compelled to say that God merely allowed this. Gordon Clark, a prominent theologian during the last century, noticed this pattern too and, and replied with this. Somehow the idea of God's permitting evil without decreeing it, it seems somehow to absolve God from the charge that he's the author of sin, but one must be careful both with respect to the logic of the argument and the full scriptural data. God permitted Satan to afflict Job, but since Satan could not have done so without God's approval, the idea of permission hardly exonerates God. Is perfect holiness any more compatible with approving or permitting satanic evil? If God could have prevented not only Job's trials, but all the other sins and temptations to which mankind is subject, if he foresaw them and decided to let them occur, is he less reprehensible on this view than if he positively decreed them? If a man could save a baby from a burning house, but decided to permit the baby to burn, who would dare say that he was morally perfect in so deciding? Gordon is absolutely right. As much as we might be tempted to try and exonerate God because we simply can't understand, can't conceive how he could possibly be sovereign over evil, we will do much better simply to stick with the Bible's plain speaking. 
God, who is sovereign over all, has, is, and ever will direct all things. All things. Not just some of them. According to his perfect, if sometimes, well, okay, oftentimes, inscrutable will. In the end, we will say in agreement with Scripture, if God is not sovereign over all things, then God is not sovereign at all. At the same time, consider, second, the fact that God's sovereign use of the wicked and of their wickedness does not indict him of wickedness. Holding as we simply must to the sovereignty of God over all things, for the scripture plainly teaches it, including the wicked and their wickedness, we must also at the same time confess the holiness of God. That God is, as we sometimes say, not the author of sin. God put baby Assyrians in their mother's wombs to be born and raised as hardened killers. God sends wicked Assyria. God governs the staff in his hand just as surely as his hand was on the hand that nailed Jesus to the cross with every blow. And yet, God is not tainted with sin. Nor is he chargeable with wrongdoing. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, writes John. Peter adds, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. As a matter of fact, third, the blame, the culpability for, for sin, the guilt remains squarely on the shoulders of man. So much so that God holds accountable now and punishes the wicked for their wickedness, as in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God's sovereignty, his sovereign control over wickedness and sin, even as it's being committed, does not in the least mitigate the responsibility of the sinner for his sin. No wonder. No wonder then that Paul should have anticipated that response in his letter to the Romans in chapter 9. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Yes, that, that is the question, isn't it? That's the question of the hour. How can he find fault when his will cannot be resisted? You remember the answer? Who are you, O oh man, 
to answer back to God. Who are you to question God? In other words, here we have come, and from here we can go no further. Here we place our hands over our mouths like Job. And if we dare to say such a thing as this, we say, let God be God. By which I mean submit ourselves to all the truths of the Bible. That God is 100% sovereign over all things, which means all things. That God, in the meantime, remains perfectly holy and untainted in the least for the sin over which he rules. And that you and I remain 100% responsible for the sin we commit freely and of our own accord every day. Don't ask me to explain it. Fifteen years of preaching God's word has only convinced me the more that I cannot. I am like Calvin, like, like you, looking now into a profound abyss. But that does not mean that there are not some very immediate applications that can and must be drawn and applied to our minds and to our lives. And, and there are, of course, and one of them must certainly be this. We must, in view of these great things, hold an even higher view of the Almighty. In other words, this doctrine is designed to put us in awe of Him, to be struck with awe before Him. And this is why Christians will do well to meditate on such things from time to time as the Scripture presents them to our view, which it does almost constantly. Last summer, our family had the experience of standing next to the John Hancock Tower in Chicago. It had been so long that I had forgotten this sensation of standing at the base of that building and looking straight up. There's something deeply impressive about the sheer magnitude, the, the height, the strength of that tower that can be known, can be experienced only by standing on the sidewalk right next to it and looking upward. Same for God. When we, when we stop alongside Him in the Scripture, when we pause to look up and see Him through the eyes of faith, moving and directing all things and all men, even wicked men who fly airplanes into those towers, causing them to fall into massive, twisted heaps of metal and glass and killing thousands. There is something truly to inspire your awe. God says later in his prophecy of Isaiah, this prophecy of Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
Christian, it will never be a disservice to him for you to experience a sense of the grandness, the otherness, the highness, far and above, above and beyond you of God. Closely related to that, we must, in view of these things, second, fear the Almighty. He is not tame. God is not tame and he is not predictable. His holy hatred for sin and his readiness, as we've seen in the Bible time and again, his readiness to punish sin with sin is enough in itself, if taken seriously, to move us to fear him with a holy fear. He's not a God to be trifled with. He does what is right in his own sight, in heaven and on earth, and he does not consult you, and he does not really care about your opinion. Instead, he comes to you to have your unquestioning allegiance, to have your faith to have your obedience. And what is more, you are always and ever, even at your most sinful, still under his sovereign control. And then speaking of fear, third, while you must fear God, you must not fear the wicked. Nail-biting Christians... Christians who live in fear, Christians wringing their hands over the next crazy bill to be passed by Congress, worried about the effect of some other person's actions or words, the effect of someone else on their own reputation or even livelihood, are Christians who are failing to live by the truth that lies face up in this text. They are whoever they may be. Even your worst enemies are always and ever under the immediate, direct, sovereign control of God. Nothing they say, nothing they do can be said or done apart from God. Nothing. Nothing another person or nation does is outside of God's sovereign control or fails to serve the glory of God and he promises the good of his children. So we sometimes sing in our worship, fearing God, we have no one else to fear. Finally, fourth, dear flock, be comforted by this doctrine, even if you cannot fully understand it. There is no such calming, so absolutely soothing and consoling and cheering doctrine to the soul as the sure and certain knowledge that my Father, my Father, is working all things 
my good. And my Father who works all things for my good has nothing but my good in store in this, whatever this may be, the wickedness of another, even my own wickedness of my own heart, which I must hate, against which I must fight, but even it, even my own sin, cannot defeat him who rules over it seems silly to say it. it seems silly to add the adjective absolutely everything remember this and stand firm I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my.